0: Did you see that little boy that was uh, standing there, the red shirt, and his arms like that? We had a little fella in Haiti that would, anytime you looked at him, that's what he did. He just, his name was Hercules, believe it or not. Uh, cute little kid, but uh, it's just kind of brought me back to those, those days. I guess I got to put this out here. I don't even know if I got it turned on. Just go back and hit the power button on that dehumidifier. Thank you. Well, we are at the millennial kingdom of God. Thank you. And uh, Jesus Christ has returned. He's back on earth. The moment that uh, many had been waiting for for ages upon ages. During this millennial kingdom, of course, the temple is rebuilt and restored to temple service on earth as a memorial to God's work in the past and what he is doing at that time. Now, during that time, the saints in their resurrected state are given responsibilities throughout the millennial earth according to their faithful services. You can read about the the parable of the faithful servant in Luke 19. Also, in a couple verses, that is coming up. Verses 4 and 6, Revelation 2, Revelation 3. But then there's one in 1 Corinthians. And I've had people, um, including pastors' children in, in our church, that didn't know this next one. First Corinthians chapter 6 verses two and three. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? But then here's the, the statement that many people don't know, and we won't elaborate much into it. I don't want to get into this tonight, but do you not know that we shall judge angels? So that's an interesting statement, that we get to sit in judgment of the angels. And I believe, from what I can read, my limited knowledge, I believe that we will be looking not at how good is a good angel. You know, did did you, you know, uh, what is it, Clarence on It's a Wonderful Life, you know, get your wing. (laughs) Did you do a good job, Clarence? I don't believe it will be like that. I believe it will be for the fallen angels that decided to follow Lucifer and that we will be there as the judge uh, and jury, let's say, to say, you turn your back on God, you're going to be condemned because we'll see here in a little bit what happens to them and their leader. But a lot of people do question, is it a thousand years? Yeah. Is this, is it really going to be a thousand-year reign? I believe it is. There's no reason not to follow along with the thousand-year literal reign of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that gives us any indication that it's uh, any kind of figurative language here. It's, I think we should just take it literally because God has a lot that he's going to do during this millennial reign. And one of the things that he's going to do is that it will demonstrate Jesus' worthiness and his victory to rule the nations. It'll demonstrate that he is worthy to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now it's also important because it's going to reveal the depths of man's depravity. Uh, during this time, men will live in a perfect world. God will be in charge. There will be no crime. No wars to speak of. It'll be a perfect environment. And there are still going to be some that are going to be a little bit honoring and rebellious. You all have heard people say, well, uh, man's problems are the result of his environment. You heard that? <clears throat> he had a bad upbringing, it was his family atmosphere he never got a chance at an education. All of those excuses are going to be gone. Yeah, you know, I remember the the accident. I believe it was in Texas. This rich kid had a car accident, killed three or four others. And they said, "Well, his parents never told him no, so he didn't know that he had to obey the rules of the road." You know, that was the defense that they used in court. And those excuses will no longer be Viable because we are now going to be in a perfect environment where God is in control. And because of that, they won't have an excuse to say it's their environment. But what that will show, it'll show the deep, depriving sin that man has within. When you take away all the excuses of environment, all the excuses of being able to have this or have that, It'll come down to the only thing that can cause the depravity of man is the internal sin that is within them that needs forgiveness by Jesus Christ. It's also important because it's going to show the eternal depravity of Satan. Satan's going to be locked up for a thousand years. And as soon as he's released, he's going to go on a heyday. So it's going to show that even being you know locked up, unable to influence anything, he still has that evil nature within him. And it's going to come out, and it's going to come out in a violent and fierce way when he is released. However, it won't be for long. Spurgeon writes, Let us rejoice that the Scripture is so clear and explicit upon this great doctrine of future triumph of Christ over the world. We believe that the Jews will be converted and that they will be restored to their own land. We believe that Jerusalem will be the center metropolis of Christ's kingdom. We also believe that the nation shall walk in the light of the glorious city, which shall be built at Jerusalem. We expect that the glory, which shall have its center there, shall spread over the whole world, covering it as with a sea of holiness, happiness, and delight. For this we look for joyful expectation. And I think that's a pretty good picture of what we're looking at in the millennial time. It's going to be a time of wonder. It's going to be a time of excitement. It's going to be a time of joy. No more uh, worrying about walking down the street. You know, you, if you're walking downtown at night, you won't run from streetlight to streetlight. You'll be able to take your time because the glory of God is going to be everywhere. It's going to be peaceful and quiet. In verse 4, chapter 20. John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years." Well, the question we have to ask is who sits on the thrones? And there's a lot of speculation about that. Some say it's the 24 elders. Others say it's the apostles and a company of saints. Still others say it's the saints themselves. Others say it's those who were beheaded and were chosen for their faithfulness to sit on the thrones. We really don't know. All we know is that the thrones are there and there's somebody sitting on them working with God as he begins this millennial kingdom in judging those who have uh, perhaps fallen. Now, some say perhaps this is the judging of the angels. Some say perhaps this is the moment where this First Corinthians passage comes into play and the, the, the good angels are getting their well done and the bad angels are saying adios, you know, Uh, You're going to get what you deserve. But again, we're not sure what judgment is being done here. All we know is that they sat on them. Someone was sitting on the throne and judgment was given to them. These saints that reign with Jesus for the same period of time that Satan is bound. And this this kind of makes sense that it might be the fallen angels where their leader is is in prison, uh, kind of. The away out of, out of any kind of influence he may have so that it make, would make sense that they would be judging those fallen angels at this point but again we are not sure they administrate though the kingdom of Jesus Christ over the earth reigning over those who pass from the earth of the great tribulation into the earth of the millennium all those who overcome in Jesus Christ will rule with him and so you know, that's a, that's a great comfort. But why does John only mention the tribulation saints? Well, uh, many believe it's because this is written to encourage them, to honor them for their steadfastness and to, under the great pressure that they would have had to take the mark of the beast or to pay homage to uh, the false prophet. They suffered under the Antichrist. You said, I'm going to rule this earth, and you will, and they didn't. So many believe, and I think it's pretty accurate, that this is to honor them. To honor, He makes mention of the tribulation saints because they have gone through probably more difficulty than any other saints during history. Now, even if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you read the Reformation period, you read even prior to that there were some horrific things done but I don't think those really will compare to what will happen during the tribulation period so John uh, through God's inspiration writes this and now that you know, they're past all of that the antichrist are, is destroyed they become in authority these martyrs being literal martyrs represent faithfulness to Jesus Christ now, the word uh, that is used here in uh, the, for those who have been beheaded, this is a, a, basically a word that means ex- executed. It doesn't necessarily have to be beheaded, but they were put to death. So um, the broad, it's a broad word that is used doesn't mean they had their heads cut off. In verse five, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over the second death over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Here's this mention again of a thousand years. Again, there's no allusion to it being figurative. There's no uh, any way really we should take this but a literal thousand years. Now, this first resurrection is the granting of of resurrection of life uh, to all those who died in Jesus Christ. This is the resurrection of blessing, uh, blessed and holy. This is the resurrection of power, because for those who are resurrected for this period, uh, the death, second death, the spiritual uh, death has no power. It's a resurrection of privilege because they've become priests of God. So basically, those who do not participate in the first resurrection are not blessed. In fact, they're probably going to be saying, "Woe me. Yeah. Uh, or, oh, no, at the very least. Because if, if you're not part of the first resurrection, uh, you're going you're to be a world of hurt. Those who do not have part of that first resurrection are under the power of the second death and have no privilege. They have no uh, ability to come and say, but God. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, it says, Jesus described two resurrections. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have gone, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So here we see uh, Jesus describing those who are in this first resurrection. The two events, though, are separated by a thousand years. The first resurrection is at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The second, for the rest of the dead, is not until the thousand years are finished. Now, there's some question by some who say, well, this is just a singular event. And if that's true, then it argues for a post tribulation rapture. Because if if it happens As a singular event The resurrection of the believers Then what do you do with those Who come to Christ during the tribulation So you know That kind of puts it out Of, out of really a, a possibility In my opinion I believe this is more of an order Such as A sequence of events The first resurrection Happens during a say seven year time period from right pre-tribulation rapture for all of those who died in Christ and through the tribulation, all of those who died during the tribulation. So the, this is just a sequence of resurrections. This is the first resurrection. the group, it's a grouping covering a space of time. The second rever- resurrection will be at the end of the millennial time period. Donald Barnhouse writes it says of the first resurrection, it must be especially emphasized that our that our phrase in the apocalypse covering this resurrection is a retrospect that looks back over all three resurrections. So we've got a time frame here that that the first resurrection is not a single event, but just an order of things. So that that hopefully will help kind of clear it up as mud but uh, don't worry about it if you believe in Jesus Christ you'll get to watch it that's the important thing in verse 7 now when the thousand years have expired (coughs) Satan will be released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. So this verse here, it it bothers some people. Why would God let him loose? Well, to show that he is a depraved creature. To show that he is pure evil. There's been a thousand years of peace on the earth. And suddenly Satan is allowed Once again, during this time, as he is going about to deceive the nations, it will also show the depravity of man. That even being brought up, as we said, in that good environment, where everything is beautiful, peace, joy, happiness, that that sin nature is still there and needs to be taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he is going to go out and he is going to deceive people. And he is going to get them to follow him. After a thousand years are over, he'll be released and successfully organize many people on earth in another attempt to bring rebellion against God. Some say, well, why will he why will he rebel? Well, because it's the sin nature and God will allow it as a final demonstration of man's rebellion and depravity. Outward conformity to Jesus' rule would be required during his reign, but seemingly an inward embrace of the lordship will stir up, will be still up to the individual. So it's still, even during the millennial reign, it's still going to be the choice of that people. Just as it is now, we have a choice to follow Jesus Christ. They will have a choice as well. And they're still going to have to trust in Jesus, just as we do today, even during that millennial time frame. In this, we see more important reason that God has for the millennial kingdom following his final rebellion. For all of human history, man has wanted to blame his sinful condition on his environment. He won't have that excuse. With the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, God will give them a thousand years of perfect environment. But at the end of the thousand years, man is still going to rebel against God. It's hard to fathom that. It's hard to fathom that even during that time frame, there will be some who can't see the goodness of God. Either they don't want to, or they're just playing at a game. Walvert writes, it will be proved once more that man, whatever his advantages and environment, apart from the grace of God and a new birth, remain at heart only evil and at enmity with God. Who will these rebels be? There will be those who survive the great tribulation and enter into the millennial kingdom. And their, dec- and their descendants. There will be infants born. There will be babies born during the millennial time frame. There will be people that will grow old. During this time, they will be required to make a choice between the devil and Jesus Christ, just as it is now. Now, Gog and Magog, these are prophetic enemies of Israel from Ezekiel to chapters 38 and 39. But the battle described in Ezekiel doesn't seem to be or it seems to be distinct from this battle here. It seems to be, a, it's a different battle. Some say it's the same. Uh, Lamar Cooper says there's three possibilities. Number one, they are the same battle, we just seeing it from different advantage points. That's possible. This is the battle written of in Revelation 16, taking place in the Megiddo Valley, Armageddon, or a combination of the two. Since we cannot identify exactly what Gog and Magog represent, it is best to say they represent all of those who oppose God and his people. So when we talk about Gog and Magog, you know, we often think of what Ezekiel writes, and we think of geographic areas of Russia, China, their opposition to Christianity, uh, their intent to back Countries which are against Israel—they're uh, very strong backers of Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria. Uh, of course, the Hezbollah. Um, there's some rumors and rumblings now that they're having a greater influence in Turkey than, than we are having now, which uh, you know, part of—I think myself—part of the reason that they went into Ukraine since they have access to the Black Sea. Uh, They can just easily bring troops across there and come down out of the north, which is what God made God, if you read through Ezekiel. So there's a lot going on in that part of the world that fits into what we read in Revelation and what we read in Ezekiel. But the truth of the matter is, it's not going to be much of a battle. It's going to be over... uh, Pretty pretty quickly, I think. This is the final battle that clearly takes place at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, it says they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Well, the beloved city, of course, is Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. They didn't even get a chance to fire a shot to put out a warning cry I think as soon as they assembled around the city God's going to say "Yeah, remember when I did this once before and sent fire down guess what we're going to do it again and he's just going to take care of it so it's not really a battle it's not even a war they may have thought so But God clearly says otherwise as as soon as they came around his beloved city of Jerusalem where he has set up his his kingdom, he just destroys it. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are. And they will be tormented day and night forever. This little phrase right here is interesting because there's... A lot of people that want to say, well, when we die, and if, if we're not on God's side, we're just annihilated. We go into nothing. No, right not. God's very clear in the language here. In fact, this is, you, in the Greek language, this could not be more clear and definitive than the way it was written. They will be, that's a promise, it's written in an imperative, tormented day and night forever and ever. No getting away from it. There was a, a scientist and his name just went with my hair. Uh, Voltaire. I got one growing back, maybe. Voltaire was an avowed atheist. All of his life he fought against anybody who said there was a God. At his deathbed, he had a Christian nurse. And that nurse tried to witness to him. But he would have none of it. And he was so mean to her. On the day of his death, It is written that as he was dying, he mumbled in his his death throes, the flames, they're so hot, I cannot take this. Where is this flame coming from? And he died. His nurse said she would never attend to anyone who was not a believer ever again. about 30 years later, his his house became the house of the British Bible Society. Kind of interesting. God got the laugh on that one. They will be tormented. As sure as there is a heaven, there is a hell. Now, we're not sure here if the saints referred to or glorified saints who reign when it says uh, they surrounded the camp of the saints, we're not sure if those are the glorified saints who reign with Jesus at the holy city, or if these are earth inhabitants who have come to faith in Jesus Christ during the millennial. Either way, it really doesn't matter. They're believers and followers of Jesus Christ. The strategy of Je- of Satan was to completely destroy God's people and to destroy the city of Jerusalem. The headquarters of Jesus Christ during this time and of course has ultimately failed the presence of the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire after a thousand years argues against annihilationism uh, as we just said and it's an eternal punishment a thousand years being just the beginning it will never end verse 11 I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it and whose face and, and fr- from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them so now we have the picture of Jesus at the great white throne and nothing can hide this phrase of Whose face earth and heaven have fled away doesn't mean that the he- earth and heavens are going to go to the other side of the universe. It's an expression used to say there's no place to hide. Great in status, power and authority, white in purity and holiness, a throne in kingly sovereignty. There's no hiding place from him as he is omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent. Well, the Bible tells us in John 5 that this is Jesus Christ or at the it's another possibility. This is the fullness of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Most, from what I've read, believe this is Jesus uh, following John 5 verses 22 to 27. Earth and heaven try to flee no place to go. Many, most Bible scholars believe that Christians will never appear before this great white throne. And it's not because we can't hide from it. Nobody can. But that we're spared from it. We're spared from this great white throne judgment because our sins have already been judged by Jesus Christ, and he took the penalty for it. So we don't have to go to this judgment. It's not required. We've already been judged through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't escape the judgment. It was just paid for by Him. Christians will have to stand before another throne, and that's the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So everything you've done at that point on this second judgment, this judgment seat, will be judged, and, and actually, uh, the, the bad stuff will just be destroyed. It'll be gone. It'll burned away. So when you stand before God, you'll have maybe a long list, maybe a short list, but it will be good stuff. It won't be anything you're saying, well, it was like this, God. You know, This is why. You don't have to do that. Everything that is not done to the glory and honor of God will be just destroyed for you before you ever get to that point. Therefore, when we be passed from these bodies to the world beyond, we must we'll each give an account of what we have done, whether good or bad. At the judgment seat of Christ, what we have done will be judged. Our motives for why we did it will be judged. Paul presents essentially the same idea in 1 Corinthians 3 when he speaks of a coming assessment of each one's work before the Lord. In that passage, he makes it clear that what we have done and our motive for doing it will be tested by fire, and the purifying fire of God will burn up everything that was not for him. You know, when you read through this stuff, it's a wonder that people do not accept Jesus Christ. It really is. You have to wonder what causes somebody to not want this forgiveness, to not want this promise. I mean, surely we have enough proof there is a God. I love arguing with creation, creation science and getting scientists. and It's easy to trip them up if you know a little bit. Um, but it, it clearly points to a God. You look at the universe, it clearly points to a God. You look at the human body, it clearly points to a God. That there is a creator, uh, but yet some people still want to deny it. And the only thing you can think of is it goes back to the depravity of man, uh, also you know, kind of elevated by Satan and his influence. But here we have promises given to us. That says all of those things that we did that were not perfect for God, for honoring for God, or done for his purpose were, were kind of thrown away didn't, as if they were never even done at all. And we stand before God with only the good and his mercy and his grace. Why, can't some, why somebody does not want that is amazing to me. In verse 12 it says, I saw the dead small and great standing before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Now, this is not a trial to determine what the facts are. The facts are written, the facts are done, they're in. This is a sentencing time. Their standing posture, Wolver writes, means that they are now about to be sentenced. Because of this sentence is a sentencing and not a trial, those who stand before the throne have nothing to say. Many will think they'll go and tell God a thing or two at the final judgment, but there's a letter from Dear Abby written some years ago, and I don't remember where I found this, but it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's sad. Dear Abby, I'm a troubled, I am troubled with something a reader wrote. What right do we mortals have to demand an explanation from God? Abby, the writer that has never known the gut-wrenching pain of losing a child, God didn't answer my prayers. And I resent being told that I have no right to question God. If there is a God, and if I ever get to meet Him face to face, you can bet your life I'll plunge it wise for Him to answer. I want to know why my little girl died and why that drunk was allowed to go on living. I love her more than my life, and I miss her so. I am mad that I am having to live in a world where she no longer lives, and I want to know why. Why shouldn't I have the right to ask God? Aren't we supposedly created in his image? If so, he has a heart and soul capable of hurting just as I hurt? Why would he not expect to be questioned if he has anything to do with miracles? I don't fear the Lord. I don't fear hell either. I know what hell is like. I've already been there since the day my precious daughter was killed. Please sign me a bereaved mother. Those are tough questions. I've had to answer some of those. And the sad thing is there is no criticism of God on that day. You're not going to go there and ask God why. You're going to go there and get the sensing that you have placed upon yourself. This desperate woman... At that point, we'll not only see the righteousness and goodness of God, but she'll also see her own sin and her rejection of him more clearly than ever before. One can only pray and hope that she somehow came to understand how the Father himself knew the pain she experienced when he allowed his son to go on the cross. If we're not listed in the book of life, then each one is judged according to his works. Those who refuse to come to God by faith, by default, on their own words, will be condemned. Works will not have an issue. It's by faith in Jesus alone. The degrees of punishment for unbelievers according to their works, however, are Here is what they are sentenced to according to specific eternal punishment, Matthew 11, 20 to 24. And we will end there. I can say that I've had people come to me and why did God do this? And what I tell them is God is there to help you get through the trauma of your bereavement. Look to him for help get mad at whatever it is that took your loved one. Uh, whether it be join Mothers Against Drunk Driving or some other organization. Uh, whether it be heart disease, cancer. I, I, I try to encourage people to redirect, because there is an anger. And it's, it's somewhat of a justified anger, but I try to get them to redirect that anger towards what took their loved one's life. And in When it comes to God, look to God for strength and for help to get you through that time. And I've had several come back to me and say, thank you. I've never thought about it that way and it has got me through it. Um, I can't, I don't know how many stillborn babies we have buried. Oh my goodness. A lot. More than I ever wanted to think of. But when you have somebody that comes up to you and talks to you about like this mother did. You know, you can't wait to see God. I'm going to ask Him why this and why that. Kind of help them redirect it. We live in a fallen world. We live in an evil world. We live in a world that is influenced by Satan. And if we can kind of redirect that thinking into those areas, this is why this is happening. God is the light. God is the peace. God is the joy. God is the strength. God is the happiness that wants to get you through this time of darkness you'd be surprised how much you will help them in their life. Uh, So there's my two cents uh, uh, when it comes to people asking questions or people saying, I can't wait to get before God because you're not going to have any opportunity to say, well, God, I want to know this. Not going to happen. So let's, let's get them to do it beforehand and maybe through them seeking after God, they will find him. And He will answer those questions now, and we can uh, see them come to faith in Jesus Christ that way. Well, let's pray. And uh, you'll have Ken back next week, so I'm sure he'll he'll do a great fine job finishing you up. And as far as I know, we're still headed to Proverbs. So uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your Word, Lord. We thank you for the promises that are in it that we will not face this white throne judgment because we have placed our faith and trust in you. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you've given us that we've seen tonight that only the things that are done for Christ will last. Everything else will be burned away as in a fire and the dross is removed and only the pure will remain. And that's only because of what you have allowed your son, Jesus Christ, to do for us on the cross. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we ask as we go throughout this week that perhaps you may put someone in our path that is questioning you. And Lord, tonight, hopefully, we'll remember what we've read. And we can take a moment and talk with him and kind of redirect that Energy so that they can blame the evil of this world and turn to you for hope and promise and strength. Lord, grant us safe travels home and a good night's rest tonight. And wow, let us somehow be of service to your kingdom tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, sir.